Well, it is a joy to worship with you today. It's a joy to consider Jesus Christ, our Savior. It's a joy to look to His Word and learn from it and to be able to teach you from it. And I pray that you will take to heart uh, what it is that the Word says, what the Word commands of us. We've been working our way through Ephesians expositionally, looking at passage to passage, connecting those together. And my goal is always just to open up the meaning of that and to suggest applications. But of course, you want to go further with it. You want to take what you learn here and apply it directly into your life and do that from day to day, not just on Sundays, but throughout the week. Ephesians is a book for a local church. The whole Bible's for the church, but Paul wrote this to a church of believers. First three chapters are on doctrine. Last three chapters are on how to live it out. And there's a lot of doctrine that we need to get right, a lot of thinking that needs to change, even as a Christian, to line up with what God's Word teaches. Even as believers, sometimes we can drift away, or sometimes we're never taught to begin with what the truth of God's Word says. So today I want to consider an often dangerous topic in the church. Dangerous because so many have gone astray on this topic, but if we stick with God's Word, I think that it will teach us the right path, of course. And I want to bring a message called Save for Good Works. Save for Good Works. We're looking at Ephesians 2.10, but I want to read the whole paragraph, the whole section to you, starting in verse 1 of chapter 2. Remember, Paul's teaching about doctrine. He, he wants them to understand who they were before they were saved, and now what God has done for them. And, and in verse 10, what they should be doing because of what God's done for them. So starting in 2.1, And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them, we too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging in the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. But God, being rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgression, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And he raised us up with them and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the ages to come he might show the surpassing riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. I mentioned that this is a dangerous topic only because there are two major errors that in Christianity have come about in church history. And even if we go back to the nation of Israel, I think these errors were present as well. But there's two major errors. If you're going to envision the Christian life and biblical teaching on it as a straight and narrow path, there's a huge ditch on either side that people fall off. One of those is works righteousness. When it comes to works, one of the major errors is works righteousness. And we dealt with that quite a bit last week. And Paul addresses it by saying we're saved by grace. By grace, you have been saved already. It's God's grace that does it. It's not your works. And he goes on to talk about faith. It is through our faith, but even that's not a work. That's a gift from God. 
And then just to make it even clearer in verse 9, not as a result of works. So that's a, a major error, an error that Roman Catholics make, Mormons, Jehovah's Witnesses, many evangelicals. Just because somebody says they believe the gospel doesn't always mean they understand works, and sometimes they think works somehow earn their salvation. That somehow works are mixed in with God's grace, and it, it's the foundation for salvation. So that's a major error. Even the Pharisees of Jesus' day were making that mistake. But the second error, the, the one that Paul now addresses in verse 10, is that good works have no place in the Christian life. You can imagine then and even now, people thinking, well, if works don't have anything to do with our salvation, then they have nothing to do with the Christian life either. I mean, why, why even worry about it? Let's just throw the whole thing out. We were once dead, now we're made alive. Let's go on with life and, and not focus on living a godly life or doing good works. And even in Christianity, we see that works often to people are not important. They're just not important. Good works as a Christian don't get emphasized. Holiness doesn't get emphasized. Sanctification doesn't get emphasized. Living for God's glory and doing good in the name of Christ doesn't get taught. But it's in the Bible. Now, we know faithful churches are going through Scripture and teaching this, but it seems like as a majority in the world, Christianity falls off in one of these two ruts. The second one uh, can go by various names. Um, this idea that there's no place at all for good works in the Christian life once you have been saved. It can go by things like once saved, always saved, which is really kind of a twisting of perseverance of the saints. It is true if you're really saved, then you'll always be saved based on God's grace. But what it gets twisted in, in as is it gets twisted as once I profess Christ, it doesn't matter what happens after that. I'm always saved. Once I get baptized as a kid, I'm always saved. Once I throw a pine cone in the fire at camp, once I say a prayer, once I walk an aisle, I must be saved. Because I said that. And it doesn't matter what my life looks like after that, I must be saved. Sometimes this is referred to as non-lordship teaching or easy believism. And the more theological term is antinomianism. Antinomianism just means against the law. In other words, there's a large group of Christians who think there's no commands that we have to live by in the New Testament. Now, you can do it if you choose, but it's not necessary in the Christian life to be a Christian, of course. It's not necessary to live out the commands of Christ. Well, Paul is addressing theology here. Chapter 1, he dealt with predestination. He dealt with election. He dealt with redemption. He dealt with sealing in the Holy Spirit. He dealt with God's power. Then he moved into chapter 2, and he's taking that down to the point where a person got saved, and he's saying, you were dead, and God made you alive. You were dead in sins. You had no hope of salvation. You are a child, he says, under God's wrath. All of us were even as the rest, even as the rest of the world right now that's unbelieving. Every believer was once under wrath, and all unbelievers currently now are under wrath by nature. We're born with a sin nature that soon gets expressed by our sinful actions. And of course, God's wrath abides upon the unbeliever, Jesus says. But now he says you've been saved by grace. And we looked last week at how it is by God's grace alone and how wonderful God's grace is and how we should be grateful and how we should be thankful that it's not of our own work because even if it was, we couldn't do it. Jesus says, be perfect like your Father in heaven is perfect. See, the Pharisees thought, well, it must be by works because God tells them to obey. So I'm just going to obey all these laws and I'll be saved. 
That's wrong. They, they forgot that first part of the Bible where God redeemed them out of Egypt first, made them his people, then gave them a law to obey. It's the same in the New Testament. By grace you've been saved in Christ Jesus. Christ died for sinners on the cross. When you trust in him through faith, through faith, God makes you alive again by his own power. And now, Paul says, now you can do those good works. You couldn't even do them before. You cannot please God in the flesh. But now, he says, not only can you do them, but you should do them. And not only should you do them, but it's necessary if you actually are a believer. It's necessary that you will bear good fruit. So I want to break down this verse. It's just one verse, but it has a lot to it into three components. And Paul takes us step by step to get to the last one, which is that we're saved for good works. First of all, he shows us that we're in Christ. He shows us the believer's identity. Who are we? Who are we? If we're not saved by works and we are saved by grace, translate that for us, Paul. Who are we? Who are we? Are we our own? Or are we God's? You can see how the verse starts off. For we are his workmanship. And in the original uh, Koine Greek, New Testament's written in Greek, the his is at the very front of the verse. It's, it's emphasized. His workmanship we are. It's his workmanship that we are. The word for workmanship is interesting. It's uh, where we get our English word poem, poema in Greek. doesn't mean we're God's poem necessarily, but you can see the connection to our English word. It means to, to craft something, a workmanship, a craftsmanship. It was used by people in the ancient times that made uh, gold crowns, silver jewelry. It's used by uh, God in the Old Testament Greek translation when he created the world and all the beauty that's in the world. And our New Testament's only used one other place in Romans 1.20. And it describes what has been made. The physical universe is God's workmanship. But here in, in Ephesians 2, this word is being, poema is being used to emphasize how skillful and intelligent God was in making us spiritually alive. He put thought into it. He, he crafted us a certain way when he made us born again. And Paul's saying, you're his workmanship. You're God's precious workmanship. Not that we can pat ourselves on the back for it, he says, but it's God who's done it. Again, you see the word for at the very beginning, and that's there to explain what's happened in the previous verse. The previous verse, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. And he says, here's how we know it, because we didn't do it. It's his workmanship that made it happen. It's, it's his workmanship. Oh, we were dead, but now we're alive. We've been united with Christ. Can you unite yourself with Christ? You can't do it. That's God's workmanship. He did it. He did it. Not a, not a good work like we do a good work. Of course, it was a good work that God did, but it's his craftsmanship. He, he made it just right, just the way he wanted it to be made. We're given a new heart. We're cleansed of all our filthiness and idols in this new covenant blessing. We're given the Holy Spirit so that we can obey God's statutes. That's what God promised in the Old Testament. Israel couldn't obey. They said we would obey. They said, we'll obey, we'll, we'll obey. And then they went back into sin and idolatry. And that happened over and over. And God says, I'm going to bring a new covenant. And we know that comes in Christ. This new covenant will give us the spirit. We'll have a new heart so that we can obey what God wants us to 
to obey. We can obey his law. We can obey the scriptures. So this idea, it completely rebukes the, the, the thought out there that we do works for salvation. We've already been told it's by grace in verse 8. We've explicitly been told it's a gift of God in verse 8. We've been told it's not as a result of works. And one more point in the argument, Paul says, is that we're God's craftsmanship. We're his workmanship. That's what the whole Reformation, you know, was about. It was about the fact that the Roman Catholic Church was teaching if you obeyed all these things, if you did the sacraments, if you got baptized on the eighth day, and and you did all these things, then God would add his grace and you might be saved. And the Reformers started studying the Bible. They they were able to look at the original Greek and Hebrew, and they, they started learning that, no, it says by faith. And even before that, it's by grace. And so they taught that it was by God's grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, that a person is saved. And the only place we see that is in Scripture alone. That's where we go. Not to popes, not to kings, not to authorities, but in Scripture alone. If we're God's workmanship, then we can't do any work before salvation to prepare for God's grace. Getting baptized before you're saved does nothing. Sprinkling some some water on a baby does nothing to prepare them for salvation. Now, being raised in a Christian home might help them hear the gospel, but that's not a good work that we can do to prepare for God's grace. So we're his workmanship. We're his workmanship. But what caused us to be his workmanship? Isn't it beautiful how God just continues to reveal more about what he's done? God does not have to tell us all of these things, but he wants to tell us. He's chosen to teach us what happened in eternity past, what happened before we were saved even, and that's so we can worship him more, so we can be thankful. We're created, we're his workmanship, and it says we're created in Christ Jesus. Having been created, it's in the passive sense here. We've we've been created by God in Christ Jesus. The word created, just as you think it might be, it means to bring something into existence, to give it life. This word, again, is also used in a description of God's creation of the universe. And now Paul's saying, just like God created everything that you see, he also created every new person in Christ. They're his craftsmanship. And the reason is because he's done the creation. There's something beautiful to look at. That's the the workmanship. How did it get that way? Because God created them in Christ to be that way. Ephesians 4, go over to Ephesians 4, uses the same word, 4.24. And this is the application part of the letter. So Paul's now going to use what he already taught and now turn it to application. And he says, put on the new self, which in the likeness of God has been created in righteousness and holiness of the truth. Same word, created. We've been created in Christ. Now that's going to have a purpose to it, but right now he's just saying, that you have been created in Christ Jesus as God's workmanship. God has accomplished it. He's done the work. We're reminded once again, it's by grace alone. Paul just doesn't let up. It's almost like he knows, and God knows, that we're going to struggle with this idea of works. That we're always going to want to pat ourselves on the back and boast. So it's almost every page in the New Testament we're reminded. It's God's grace. He did it. It's said in different ways, of course, throughout Scripture. But it's all pointing to the fact that it's by God's grace. Colossians 3.10, parallel passage really to Ephesians here. 
uh, Ephesians, a parallel to Ephesians 4.24, Colossians 3.10, and have put on the new self who is being renewed to a true knowledge according to the image of the one who created him. Put on the new self. You're a new person. Make sure you act that way. Make sure you live that way because God has created you in Christ to be that way. Not speaking of your birth or conception even. That's a natural creation that God did, of course. But he's speaking of the new creation here in Christ. 2 Corinthians 5, 17 is really the best verse. It's one of my favorites. It's a, it's a verse that when my brother got baptized, I went up and told him that. I think he even had a t-shirt maybe on that said that as well. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature, a new creation. The old things passed away. Behold, new things have come. The new person in Christ is something new. It is not the old self. It's something completely new. And of course, the baptism my brother went through didn't give him that. That was just a recognition of what had already happened in his heart, what God had already done. And, and notice it says, in Christ. How many times has that come up in Ephesians already? It just keeps coming up because Paul is teaching us about this subtle doctrine. It's always there, though. It's always there. He doesn't devote a whole page to it, but it connects to so many of the verses in Christ, in Christ. This is not a creation that happened outside of Christ. It didn't happen in another religion. It didn't happen even within kind of Christianese or Christianity in America. It happened in Christ. That's the place that it happened. That's the sphere that it happened. How does that work? Well, God saves us by his grace through faith. He puts us into Christ. We're in Christ and he's in us. Now, maybe you were doing those sinful things, drinking, drugs, sexual immorality, and God saved you out of it. But it's not because of those things or in the realm of those things that you were saved. You're saved in the realm of Christ. He is the only one that God could make us a new creature in. Union with Christ. Doesn't happen anywhere else. Doesn't happen by any other means. That's why Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. There's no other place to go to be united with Christ except through Him the Son of God. So believers are something very different. They're created in Christ Jesus. And what what, what's dead is now alive. When we once focused on pleasing ourselves, our lust, the world, the devil, now we're focused on pleasing Christ, on pleasing God the Father, on not quenching the Holy Spirit. The old self was was dead in sin, and the new self has been made alive. We're a changed person if you're in Christ. And it ought to look like that to others as well. We, are, we ought to have desires that focus on Christ and God the Father. We ought to desire His Word. We ought to desire the pure milk of the Word, Peter says. We ought to desire a good church. We ought to desire good preaching, biblical, true preaching and teaching. We ought to desire growth in the Christian life. We're new creatures in Christ. You have to ask if you're a new creature in Christ. Am I desiring these things that the Bible tells me I should desire? Has there been a change in my life? It's one of the things we ask every new member. Tell us about your life before you came to Christ. Tell us about your conversion if you know when it happened. And tell us about your life after. And every new member can attest that we have a discussion about that before they join the church. We want to celebrate with them, but we also want to make sure they understand that there has been a change. There has been a change from the old to the new. Are you a new creature in Christ? 
Do you have new desires, new affections, so you no longer have your heart set on sinful lust, but instead you have your heart set on Christ? So that's who we are. Paul starts with that argument. Now he's going to work his way down the chain. Secondly, what's the believer's goal? We've been made new. We've been granted faith as a gift even. We have a new identity. Now what's the goal of that? Well, there are many goals in Scripture for a person who's been made new, but one of them mentioned right here, the one mentioned right here, is that we're created in Christ Jesus for good works. There's a goal to that. God didn't just go along flipping coins. He didn't just, you know, spin the wheel to see what might happen. He didn't just save people and let them wander off to do what they wanted. There's a goal. He he gave us a new heart and a new life so that we might return to him, so that we might do his will, so we might do good works. Those of us who are new creation have our purpose to glorify God through our works. How does, that, how does that figure in? I thought we couldn't do anything good. I thought we couldn't earn anything by our works. And now Paul's saying, that's why he created us? Remember, it's created in Christ Jesus. This is not your conception, but your conversion to Christ. Being put in Jesus Christ and him in you and the spirit in you. You're granted faith by God's grace. You're changed. You might say it like this. We're saved from God's wrath, but we're saved for good works. Or you could say good works are never the cause of salvation. They're never the cause. They're never the foundation. They're never the basis. But they certainly are a consequence of salvation. Good works do nothing before salvation, and they please the Lord and honor and glorify Him after salvation. The reformer John Calvin said it like this. He said, It is faith alone that justifies, but faith that justifies can never be alone. Got you on that one the rest of the day. It is faith alone that justifies. The Bible's clear on that. But once a person's been justified, you're going to notice that it's not just justification they have, but they also have good works. That will be there. It's a necessity. If we're united with Christ through faith, we're not just justified, which means declared righteous, but we're also being made holy throughout the rest of our lives. Justification happens in an instant. The moment we have faith, the moment God's grace is granted to us, He declares us righteous. The judge says, you're free. You're free. Now come accept all these benefits that weren't yours to begin with, but now they are. You're forgiven. But sanctification is progressing in holiness. We're declared righteous, but we don't always live like we're righteous as Christians. So God's going to do that work in us throughout the rest of our lives until we're made perfect and we go to be with him. Warren Wearsby, a popular commentator of the Bible, said, We're not saved by faith plus good works, but by a faith that works. We can't add works plus faith and get somewhere. We're going to go nowhere with that. But once we have faith, works will, of course, accompany that afterwards. Producing good works after you're justified, after you're saved, is essential to the Christian life. Too many Christians think once, once you're saved, you're done. I got my K 
get out of jail free card. I got my church membership card right here. I got my baptism certificate. I don't have to go to hell now. Going back to live just like I did before. I did it and I'm done. And you'll even talk to people who say, I've tried Christianity for a while. I tried it, but it just didn't work out. They were never converted in the first place. If you're converted in the first place, Paul's saying you will, you will have good works. That's, that's the goal of why you were created in Christ Jesus. The Bible says these good works are vital to the Christian life. Not vital for justification, for salvation, no, but for the Christian life. They're a necessity. Like what Charles Spurgeon had to say, he always makes things, Spurgeon says, we have been clear. He says, we've been very clear upon the fact that good works are not the cause of salvation. But let us be equally clear upon the truth that they are the necessary fruit of it. You've got to have good works. Not so you can pat yourself on the back, but that's why God created you in Christ. That's the goal. That's the goal. To praise Him, yeah, that's a good work. To honor Him, yeah, that's a good work. To glorify Him, that's a good work. All your good works as a Christian will glorify God. Titus 2.14, Paul says to Titus that God gave himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good deeds. He redeemed us. Christ came and he paid the price for us. He bought us out of bondage to sin. Now we're slaves of Christ. We're slaves of God. We're going to serve him. And we ought to be zealous for good deeds, good works zealous, serious about it. It would be a good thing for people to make fun of you because you're so serious about pleasing God. Not, not overtly introspective all the time, but you just, you love the Bible. You love your church. You love God. And if people want to laugh about that, so be it. Because it says here, that's the goal of being created in Christ. Don't let somebody tell you that you're too serious about the Bible. Are you too serious about the Christian life? There's an occasional person that maybe beats himself up too much, right? But that's not most of us. We're not serious enough. We're not zealous enough. We're not energized and excited is what zealous means. James talks about this because he had a lot of people, James did when he wrote his letter. He had a lot of people in the churches he wrote to that said they had faith, but they had absolutely no evidence that they had had a changed heart. They had had a new life. So James writes this letter to these churches. There's a lot of Jews at that time. Most of the church was Jewish. James is an early letter, probably the first one. And he says, what use is it, my brethren, if someone says he has faith, but he has no works? Can that faith save him? James is not asking if faith alone will save. That's already been established. Can that kind of faith that person says they have save them? In other words, if they don't have any good works after they've been changed, that's not even a kind of faith that will save. That's a different kind of faith than what the Bible's talking about. Remember, he goes on to talk about demons. Demons believe. They have a certain kind of belief, but they don't have a, a changed heart. They don't have a trusting in Christ kind of belief. So James says, can that faith save him? And he, ha- he goes on to say, faith, if it has no works, is dead, being by itself. Are you willing to recognize, you foolish fellow, that faith without works is useless? God saves you. Yes, you have faith. But 
at that moment and following, there will be good works. And James says, if there's not, what kind of faith do you even have? It's a dead faith. It's a dead faith. It's not actually a faith that leads to salvation. A good tree will bear good fruit, Jesus said. We could also say it like this. A pure fountain will produce pure streams. It will produce pure streams flowing from it. A new heart will produce good works flowing from it. I think today in Christianity, we're too focused on how we still stumble. And so we always say things like, well, no one's perfect. No one's perfect. I think Paul says that once. He's not perfect and he's still striving. All the rest of his teaching on this issue is about how we should be striving for holiness. How we should be pursuing it. How we should be doing good works. Let's emphasize in the right proportions like the Bible does. Let's rarely use no one's perfect to kind of excuse our lack of growth and sanctification. Now we have to ask what are these good works he's talking about specifically because we often think good works are mowing your neighbor's yard or doing something tangible for somebody. And certainly that is good works. But that's not all. That's not all. Paul's going to open this whole thing up in chapters 4 through 6. And he's going to go through some major good works that they need to be doing as a church. But we could just say, in general, good works is any growth in holiness. Any growth in holiness is good works. Any growth in holiness is something that's pleasing to the Lord, that honors Him, that glorifies Him, that, that directs people to look to God. Go back to Ephesians 4, where he's going to start this section talking about the works they need to do to please the Lord and walk. He says, I implore you, I implore you based on everything I just taught you, to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called. And then he goes on to describe it. Humility. It's characterized by gentleness, patience, tolerance, unity of the Spirit, unity in doctrine, unity around the gospel. And then that next section, 4.17 through about the middle of chapter 5, he's just going to talk about living a holy life in your mind and with your tongue. So it is tangible acts, but it's also living a holy life. You're walking according to the calling that God gave you. When he called you out of death into life. And one of the major ways you're doing that is your thought life, your speech life, your love for other people. So generally it's just growth in holiness. But he'll get more specific about these good works later on in chapter 5, about middle of chapter 5. He'll start to say, wives, be submissive to your husbands. That's a good work. Husbands, love your wives. That's a good work. He goes on to talk about children, obey your parents. Parents, make sure you're raising up your children in discipline and instruction of the Lord. Make sure you're teaching them the Bible, explaining the gospel, bringing them to church. He goes on to talk about how at work, we're to work for God and not just to please our masters. And he talks to the masters, the the employers, and he says that we're to treat those who work under us as God would want us to treat them. And then he says, put on the armor of God and use prayer to fight the devil. That's a good work. So what are good works? He's going to lay those out for us. Hopefully you'll be here as we look at those in more detail. But you could just say in general, 
It is living a more godly life. Thirdly, the believer's purpose. The believer's purpose. So our identity is in Christ. We're created to be God's workmanship. The goal of that is for good works that honor the Lord. And then he says about these works, he teaches us about them, that they've been prepared by God so that we might walk in them. You see that? Which, he says, which God prepared beforehand. The which there is the good works. God not only predestined you for salvation, but he also predestined your good works if you're in Christ. He's laid them out beforehand. Now, Paul doesn't go off into a discussion on free will. He doesn't go off into a discussion of how man's responsibility matches up with God's sovereignty. But we see them both here, don't we? God's already prepared. Now you must walk. God's already prepared for you to do it. Now you must go and do it. I'm thankful for that. I don't have to guess at what I'm supposed to do. God tells me in his word. And I don't even have to worry. God's already prepared them beforehand. He preordained for you. He has, he has given you the exact blueprint to do them. You don't know what it is yet because you don't know the future. But you're supposed to study the word and you're supposed to live it out and you're supposed to live a godly life. And whatever happens that is good in your life is exactly what God has prepared beforehand for you to do. And I mean good as in good works. Not only is your justification plan, but your sanctification as well. Those are two separate doctrines, but they do happen. They do happen from the same God, of course. And sanctification starts at the minute you're justified, the second, the instant that you're justified. You see, the Roman Catholic Church confused those two. Many Christians, many evangelicals confused those two. Remember, justification declared righteous instantly when you have faith. Sanctification being made righteous by God throughout the Christian life. And God says, I've done both of those ahead of time. I've prepared them. I've planned them. I've chosen whom I would give them to, Paul said in Ephesians 1. Everything we're supposed to do has already been laid out by God so that we would walk in them. He includes himself, Paul. Paul's saying we, himself and all the believers. Walk has to do with your life, your lifestyle. He doesn't say so that we would sit in them. That doesn't fit because we're not just supposed to do one thing and sit down. It doesn't say that you'll sleep in them, walk in them. It was a metaphor in the Old Testament for how you lived your life, how you conduct yourself, how you behave yourself. He's come full circle, hasn't he, from verse 1 of chapter 2. Go back to 2.1. You were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you formerly what? You formerly walked according to the course of this world. Before Christ, we walked just like the world wanted us to, just like the flesh and Satan wanted us to. But now, Paul says, you've been changed. You are a new creature. You need to walk like God wants you to. Not the world, not the flesh, not the devil. But just, just walk in the ones God has already prepared, in the good works he's already prepared for you. Remember, walking in transgressions and sins back in verse 2 did not mean an occasional stumble, right? That was a constant lifestyle of being sinful, of thinking sinful thoughts and doing sinful actions and having sinful attitudes. Now just flip it for the Christian life. What are we supposed to do? 
We're supposed to have godly, righteous thoughts, godly, righteous attitudes, and godly, righteous actions, deeds. It's the exact opposite from what we once had. And, and notice the language. He says, to walk in them. Not to work in them. He doesn't use the word work. He says walk. Live your life. Don't think that it's some great work that you've got to beat yourself up about. That you've got to, to whip yourself into gear. Now sometimes you do if you get lazy. Sometimes you do have to get others to correct you and rebuke you. Praise the Lord for that. But at the root of it, it should be a, a natural movement in the right direction. A natural desire to go in the right direction. Because God's already done all the work and laid it out for us. Philippians 2, I think, is a great passage on this. It's very clear. Um, go forward from Ephesians to Philippians 2 and look at verse 12 and 13. A lot of people just read verse 12 and then get confused because they stop, but you've got to read 13 as well. And he says here that we ought to work, he, he commands them to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Not work for your salvation, but work it out. It's already been given to you by God. Now work it out. Work it out. Live it out. Be sanctified. Do good deeds. Do good works. The thing that God's planted in you, now let it grow and express itself outside of you. And then verse 13. What does he say? For it is God who is at work in you. Both to will, that's changing your desires, and to work for his good pleasure. So God's doing the work in us? Yeah. We're, we're supposed to do the work? Yeah. How does that work out? Paul says it does. The Bible's true. How does that work out? God is sovereign. Man is responsible. God has planned it already. God is doing it in us. And we really have no excuse if we're not doing good works, if we're not growing in godliness. He's already done it all. We just have to act upon that. He's given us the desire, so we've got to stop fighting against that. And he's already laid out the things. We just need to go and do them. It should just naturally come out of us, though. At least a bit of it should be there in our hearts, a desire, a willingness. Some of us grow at different rates. Some of us weren't taught these things early in our Christian walk. We're trying to play catch-up. Some of us still struggle with some indwelling sin. Paul talks about all those issues elsewhere. But there should be this new heart change that drives us forward to serve and please the Lord. So those are the three points. I want to give you now some points of application for this. Connected to some of the, the doctrinal issues that come up and some of the lifestyle issues that come up in the church today. We're going to flesh out the specific applications when we get to chapters 4 through 6. But I want to just address the thinking application. You do realize that there's application of the mind and there's application in your actions. Sometimes we, we want application of action. Tell us, tell us, preacher, four things to go do today. Well, sometimes it has to start here before it gets expressed here. That's why Paul spends three chapters on doctrine, three chapters on application. So the first application, if you're taking notes, the first one. This passage shows us that non-lordship doctrine is false. What is non-lordship doctrine? It's that second error that I was talking about earlier. The idea that when a person has been changed, when a person has been changed, 
They have a new life. They have a new heart. They're a new creature. They would say, no change in their life at all. There doesn't ever have to be a change in their life. It's called non-lordship because lordship, lordship, which is what I believe is biblical, lordship is that I have Jesus as Savior and Lord. When he's my Lord, I follow him. I, I obey him. He's my master. But there are some who say we can have Jesus as Savior, but not as Lord. And at some point later, you might choose, you might choose, they say, to make Jesus your Lord. But there are some Christians that are carnal Christians who don't have Jesus as their Lord. The, one of the authors that wrote a book back in the 80s and 90s about this admitted once that it was really came to his mind, this doctrine did, when he thought about his loved ones who were professing Christ but not living like it. They were professing to be believers. They weren't living like it. And he began to look at passages, and especially in the Gospel of John, and come up with this doctrine that a person can be changed but show no evidence, no fruit, no good works, and still be a Christian. Paul's saying, that's, that's why you've been created. That's why you've been given a new life and a new heart for good works. God's already prepared it so that you would walk in them, so that you might walk in them. It's expected. It's a necessity. So which brings me to my second application, which is really flipping the non-lordship around and thinking of it for believers. What does this mean for us? It means that we have some evidence of salvation. It helps us with assurance. It teaches us that we can have assurance of our salvation. Now, don't just look to works in your life and think that's all. That's all you need for assurance. There has to be faith in Christ. There has to be an ongoing faith, an ongoing repentance. But the Bible's clear. If you also have good works with those, then you can have assurance that you are a believer in Christ. That's what 1 John's all about. The church split in 1 John. A bunch of people left with a false teacher. And they were pointing back to the ones who stayed and saying, you're not really a Christian. We are the true Christians. And so John writes this letter saying, here's how you know. Here's how you know if you're a Christian. And he just starts off early on in his letter saying, if we walk in the light as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. What does that mean? If you walk in the light, remember, walk is to live. If you live a godly lifestyle, you don't earn your salvation, but that's evidence that you have been saved. Then we have fellowship, true koinonia, with not only one another, but Jesus. You have true relationship with Jesus, who is the one who cleanses us from all sin. So it, it can give us assurance. Jesus commanded, let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works. Do good works so they can see them and what? Glorify your Father who's in heaven. That's assurance. Again, not to pat yourself on the back, but to say, if I'm struggling whether I'm saved or not, I can begin to look at some evidence. I can ask other people, do you think I'm saved? Do you think I live a godly life like the Bible says? Not perfect, but living a godly life in general. Let's go to John chapter 15. I think this is the best passage where Jesus is very clear. These passages are clear, but I think this is the most clear one. Uh, Jesus 15, he's talking about, uh, John 15, Jesus is talking about the vine. You want to be connected to him. You want to be in Christ. You want to be united to him. He's the true vine. 
He's the true branch. He is the, the source. Starting in verse 5 of chapter 15. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit. He doesn't say maybe. He doesn't say it's questionable. He says it will happen. It's just who you are. This should give you assurance. You'll bear much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he's thrown away as a branch and dries up, and they gather them and cast them into the fire they're burned. But if you abide in me, he says, and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. My Father is glorified by this. So how's God glorified? How do we glorify God as a Christian? This is it. Verse 8. That you bear much fruit. And so prove to be my disciples. You're not earning it. That's not what he means by prove. But think of show, you show yourself to be a Christian by doing good works. It's just what happens in the Christian life. You should strive to do that. You should pursue it. And Jesus says that will show people that you're one of mine, that you're connected with the branch because you couldn't even do those things if you weren't connected to the true vine. So number two was assurance. And the last one, that no one can boast in their sanctification. The third application here is you can't even boast in your good works that you do after you're saved. Now he's already said you can't boast in your, in your salvation, in your justification. But now he's saying you can't even boast in your sanctification. God has prepared them beforehand. God's prepared them beforehand. We should be happy when we do a good work. We should be joyful because it pleases God, though, not because we've done something great. It should give us joy, but it's got to be the right kind of joy that's directed towards God's glory. He has created us to walk in them that he's done beforehand. We ought not to boast. There was a lot of boasting in the Corinthian church. There was a lot of boasting about the spiritual gifts in Corinth. And Paul writes this letter in 1 Corinthians where he just hammers them about their ungodliness and about their lack of holiness and about how much they were boasting in themselves. These are people who are saved for the most part. And he says in 1 Corinthians 4, 7, For who regards you as superior? What do you have that you did not receive? talking about receiving them from God. If you did not receive it, why do you boast as if you had not received it? Why do you boast? If you got it, you got it from God. And if you didn't get it, then you ought not to boast at all. You can only boast in the Lord. We can only boast in what God has done for us. It's by the grace of God that I can even preach to you. It's by the grace of God that you can even be here listening right now. It's by the grace of God that we can live day to day seeking to glorify Him. So let's do these things. Let's, let's think rightly about good works. Let's put them in their proper place as the Bible does. Let's seek to walk in them. And we'll be looking at that in the coming weeks and months. Let's pray now that God would help us to obey Him in this. Father, we love You here. Those who are in Christ have a, a new heart. We, we desire to follow You. We want to follow You. We struggle sometimes to do so, but we... We have that desire. We have even sometimes just a smoking little flame. And we pray that you would make it greater, that you would help us to excel still more. Help us to grow in our desire for good works, for growth and holiness. Help us to please you. 
You haven't given your commands to be burdensome. You haven't given your commands to make us earn anything. You've given them to us to live by so that we might be holy, so that we might glorify you. Those who have a new heart need to live like it. And I pray that maybe there's somebody here today who's heard this message and they wonder if they're doing good works and they wonder if they're Christian. And I pray that you would convict them, Lord, that you would work on their heart, that you would help them to examine themselves to see whether they're in the faith. We honor you. We praise you. We know this is your inerrant word that we want to do as you've told us. So we might bring glory to you. Amen.